I thought I knew that I had a mother and father. I thought I knew I had brothers. I thought I knew, but it just seemed so strange that how could you have to do? Now I know for sure. Welcome back to the Corinne Podcast. As regular listeners will know, uh, this season, season four, uh, we are asking just one question to our guests. Can you teach us the whole Torah standing on one leg? Al regal achat. This week, we were profoundly honored um, to be invited into the home of Holocaust survivor Rena Quint, um, whose story, as she says, is quite different uh, to most other survivors um, and is really, really inspirational. You'll hear as well that Arya and I remain silent for most of this episode um, as we did just sit in awe uh, listening to her. Uh, and so for this special Yom HaShoah episode of the current podcast, Al Regalachat, uh, here is Rena Quint. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to another episode of the Koren podcast. We are honored to be joined uh, or to be joining uh, Rena Quint here in her home. Rena, thank you so much uh, for having us. Thank you for coming. As we are speaking to all of our guests this season of Al Regal Achat, we're asking them to teach us the Torah standing on one leg. Um, in, a, in our discussion today, we've already had a chance in our conversation before we started recording to hear about the many, many different groups and places you're going and people you're speaking to. What's the one message, what's the one Torah that you always try to include to leave the people you speak with? Um, and can you teach us that, that message today? I'm the only survivor of my family, and I was between the ages of three and a half and nine and a half, which meant that I was really not able to take care of myself. Every time my mother was killed, another woman became my mother. And when she became, she was killed, another and another and another. And I think the message is that people have to help each other. I had help all along. I don't even know most of the people. I don't remember my mother, just the last women who, who adopted me in America. But I know that each one of those played a role. And I think we have to remember that we have to help others. We have to love as much as we can and pray that we have peace as much as we can and make sure that Israel is safe and free and that any Jew who wants to come here should be able to do so. We have to be the people they never had a chance to be. And I think that if I speak to younger people who are on the verge of marriage or thinking about it, there's a lot of assimilation and intermarriage in the world today. And in the United States, besides having all this intermarriage, um, uh, people know nothing about the Holocaust. And I think we have to remember what happened in the past and, and make sure that it doesn't repeat ourselves. And if Jewish men and women could marry other Jewish men and women and bring in Jewish children to this world, we can never bring back the others or repopulate them, but at least we can go on. And by, by, by assimilating and intermarrying, I think we're giving Hitler a posthumous gift. So it, we'd struggle to disagree, of course, with, with that message, but I think to, to fully understand where you're coming from, I think we, we need to ask the question of, I mean, you, can you tell us your story? Of course. How, how you came to be where, where you are today? Okay. Um, my story is different from most survivors' stories. Um, it's different because a million and a half Jewish children were killed, and I remained alive between the ages of three and a half and nine and a half. The only survivor of my entire family. Impossible. And things that I tell you uh, I, mean, I have a lot of differences, but I have proof of everything that I'm saying now. I didn't always. Until 1989, I didn't even know when I was born. 
1989, I went back to Poland. I found my birth certificate. I found my brother's birth certificates. I found my parents' marriage license. Not only did I find out that who they were and they were married, but they were married by a rabbi, um, Rabbi Mayer uh, Shapiro, who left Pietrakov, the city that I was born in, to go to Bildhochme Lublin, and he's the one who started Dafyomi. If he married my parents, they were probably religious Jews attending his synagogue, because otherwise, why would he have just married them? So I feel good that I'm carrying on in that way. My story is different, because most children who did survive did so by being in Christian homes, in uh, monasteries, in hiding in the woods. That wasn't me. I was in a ghetto, the first ghetto, Pietrakov. I was at a slave labor factory. I was in various concentration camps. I was in Bergen-Belsen. Then I was taken to Sweden into displaced persons camp, from there to America. And then I was adopted in America. And at the age of 10, I had a wonderful life. I wrote a book called um, A Daughter of Many Mothers. I had six mothers. I don't remember them. Um, uh, written by Barbara Sofer and myself. And it says, her horrific childhood and wonderful life. And that's what it was. It was a terrible, terrible childhood at the age of 10. But after the age of 10, everything was wonderful. My story is different because when you lose your mother and your father and your brothers and aunts and cousins and you have nobody, that wasn't me. My adoptive parents gave me mother and father, grandparents. My children had grandparents, which is unusual for um, Holocaust survivors. And... Um, and they gave me everything that that a lucky child, American child, would have. And then my story is different because there's a wonderful ending. I married a wonderful, wonderful man whom I was married to for 60 years. And he, we, we had four children, 22 children. And as of two weeks ago, we have 44 great-grandchildren. So we're, our children are doing their, their share, and we're very, very happy. My story, in 1989, we had made Aliyah, and I started volunteering in Yad Vashem, and I became a docent there, and I guided in the art museum, and then the historical museum, and they had a trip to Poland. I had never been back to Poland, and I was terrified of going back, but my husband encouraged me. He said, we have to go, and he promised to do everything to help me. We were told that people wouldn't be so kind to us to let us in, but if you would bring chocolate, coffee, leather belts, and dollar bills, you can get in any place. And it was, in 89, it was under communism, it was under Russia, and Poland was poor, not anymore. So we went to Poland, and I found lots of things. I found my house with the mezuzah still on the door. And I have a picture of the house with the mezuzah. The woman who lived there did let us in. I have a picture of her. And it's a beautiful apartment with a, um, a gorgeous floor and a, and, a, and a ceramic oven and a beautiful china closet. I never asked if it was my mother's. All I wanted was the mezuzah that seemed to be so important. But it was very important that I found this because I also found the stairs that we had to go to, which I will tell you in a minute. But when I was there and I saw this beautiful apartment, Barbara Sofa, the woman who helped me write a book, found for me a pre, prenuptial agreement that my mother made in 1930. And apparently she had money and jewelry and bedding and furniture, 
And so a lot of the things that I saw in the apartment may have belonged to her. I have no proof of that. Pietrukov was the first ghetto that was organized when the Nazis came in. They divided Poland into three. One third went to Germany, they had this pact. One third went to Russia, and the central stayed as the general government in Poland. That's where we lived. September 1st, 1939, the war started. Nazis came in, and there were planes flying overhead. There were bombs being dropped. There were tanks coming in. The Polish army was not ready. And people started hurrying and scurrying. People who were able to afford it took wagons to Russia. My mother took us down to the basement. Um, my two brothers, David and Yassi, and myself, my father. They, they took my father to a slave labor factory. My father and my uncle called the Hortensia Glass Factory where they made all kinds of glass. It was a man's camp. There were two other camps, woodworking and tanning of leather that was mixed. But this was a man's camp. And you were lucky if you were taken because there were rumors flying that the Germans had gas chambers and they were shooting people, mass graves. And if you would work, if you would be needed, they wouldn't kill you. So my father went away. Uh, because my mother had money, maybe I didn't starve because people who lived... They made barbed wire fence around the Jewish section, and that was known as the ghetto. And then people surrounding, who were outside of the ghetto, weren't allowed to live there, the Jews. They had to move into the ghetto. And then and surrounding little shtetlach, little towns and villages, they couldn't live there. They moved in. So if you think about it, you have four and five and six families, 30 extra people coming into you. It got very crowded. Mm -hmm. Many people couldn't get into apartments. They were put into mikvahs or synagogues, or they were dying out in the street. And um, one night, middle of the night, they came pounding at the door, yelling, Rouse, Rouse, Shrell, you have 10 minutes to pack up whatever you need and run down these terrible stairs. The stairs are still there. And when I walked there, I said, it was impossible that I could have done that. What would you take if you had 10 minutes? I'm asking you, but as a podcast, you can't answer. But I think you should take ID so that you know who you are in case you have to leave. You should take food. You don't know where it's going to come. You should take um, uh, warm clothing or blankets. Maybe you should take the baby. You know, you, if you're carrying that, maybe you can't carry the other things. Or the old grandmother like me who needs help going down. Very difficult in 10 minutes to make up what you take. And we took what we had, and we ran down the stairs. People fell. Other people fell on top of them. It was pandemonium. Until we got to this big square called Platz Trebunowski. All the um, cities in Poland, have you been to Poland? Yeah. So they all have big squares. Yeah. And this square, they rounded up 2,000 Jews from the, from the ghetto. That was in the ghetto. And they took us to the synagogue where Rabbi Lau, who is the grandfather of the present Rabbi Lau. Right. So his son uh, was, the pre was the previous uh, chief rabbi of Israel, yeah. and now David Lau is the, right. is, is the rabbi. This was his synagogue, and I have pictures showing you the Mug and David, the Jewish star, and the pictures of the synagogue. It was yeah. a beautiful building. Was, have yeah. you been there? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you go up to the upstairs to the library. Yes. The back, the okay. So you may have seen that back door. Yeah. That back door is very important. Very, very important to me. Inside the synagogue, you can see what the picture of the Aaron Kodesh. 
the, the ark, and you can see bullet holes in it. So they were shooting. 2,000 people couldn't get into the building. As many as they could, they pushed in. My mother and brothers and I were one of them. Uh, people who couldn't get in were taken out to the Rackle Forest. You probably went to see there, they have a mass grave. They dig, dug ditches, and then they were shot into the graves they'd made for themselves. We're in the synagogue, and there's shooting going on, and there's beating going on, and they threw out the Sefer Torah, and, and the, um, the Chumashim, and the Sidurim, and they, um, I don't know how it happened. In the back of, of that uh, synagogue that you saw, now it's a library. There are no Jews left there, so there's no reason for a synagogue. So it's a lovely library, and if you ask the librarian to open the curtains, you can see uh, the bullet holes. Behind that door, there was a man. I don't know exactly who he was. I called him uncle. Maybe he was an uncle or was a polite way. My name was Fredja at the time. Fredja or Fredel in Yiddish. And he beckoned to me and he said, run, run. I must have been very stupid. You don't run when the bullets go flying, right? I must have been very naive. He said, run. I was holding on to my mother, I'm sure. I can't tell you this, I have no proof of this, but that's what a six-year-old child would be doing. And my two brothers, who were eight, nine and a half, maybe my mother pushed me, maybe God pushed me. The man told me to run, and I ran. The easy could have shot me. The easy could have bopped me over the head and pushed me back. Maybe they didn't see me because it was such pandemonium. And there was such crowdedness, and, and this little kid running. Well, if, how far would this kid run? Anyway, miraculously, I ran out. That was the last time I saw my mother and my brothers. All those people were put onto those cattle cars and taken to Treblinka. Treblinka is one of the extermination camps. And when they got there, they had to get undressed. Their hair was shorn. They heard screaming in a room, a chamber, which was a gas chamber. And uh, when the screaming stopped, they had other people pull out the dead bodies and the rest of them. I was not there. This is what I heard and read of other people who, who knew more about it than I do. If you go to Treblinka now, there were 17,000 stones to remember the 860,000 people who were murdered there, half of Pietrikov and half of Warsaw. And the big stones have the name. And I, that's a, I have a picture of me with one of the March of the Living that I had gone to there. Uh, I never saw my mother, my brothers, or any of those people. But this man took me to my father, who was working in a glass factory. My father hugged me and kissed me and was glad to see me, but what was he going to do with me? It's a man's factory. I'm a six-year-old girl. The men tried to hide me, to put me behind a bunker, behind a stove, behind them, whatever. But one day my father said, we have to have a talk. From now on, you're not a girl anymore, and your name isn't Fredja. You have to remember you're a boy. Your name is Froyim and you're 10 years old. Boys over the age of 10 could work. Under the age of 10, the, and girls were worthless. 
say it. I'm, my name is Froyam, I'm 10 years old. I'm a boy, my name is Froyam, I'm 10 years old. My name is Froyam, I'm 10 years old. Say it, say it, say it, so you'll remember it. God was with me and I remembered it. Or I was, I don't know how, but I, I worked there. There were big German shepherd dogs all the time, and people had to work, and it's very hot. And, uh, it was a terrible place, but it was a place to stay alive. But it didn't last, even with the German shepherd dogs and all that. The Allies were getting closer, the end of 44. And uh, Germany decided to hide what they had been doing. There were six extermination camps, Auschwitz, Majdanek, Sobibor, Chelmnow, Belzitz, and Treblinka, all in Poland. Why? Well, first of all, out of the six million, three and a third million Jews lived in Poland, so they wanted to get rid of them. All the train tracks led into the camps, and the Polish people at that time, today they're talking about a new Polish law, but at that time, um, they didn't mind seeing full trains of people coming in and empty trains leaving. And full trains coming in, didn't anybody ask where do they work, where do they live, where do they shop, where do they do anything? Nobody asked, nobody cared. So the Germans had a good place. But when the war was coming closer, the Allies, meaning the Americans, the British, and the Russians were coming closer, they decided to bring these cattle cars over and take as many people out. Many of the death marches where people walked in the snow, they were called death marches because many of the people died on those death marches and we didn't have shoes and, and we didn't have proper clothing. Anyway, um, I went with my father and my uncle, put into one of these cattle cars. 80 to 100 people would be placed in a car and sometimes it could take two or three days for those cattle cars to reach places like Maidanik and Auschwitz and, and Treblinka, sometimes there was less time. But people went crazy in those cars. People fainted, people vomited, people died. Um, it was very cold. There was nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and no toilet. So you can imagine the stench and the horror. Finally, we crossed from Germany to Poland, and the doors were flung open, and we jumped down into the snow. We used the snow to eat it, because we were so hungry. And we used the snow to drink it. And there was light from the heavens, because in the cars it was so black and dark. And there were people, our factory of men, Hortensia, and two others, where they did uh, woodworking and tanning. They had men and women. And everybody got off there. And the, while we were getting used to this new scene, Germans on motorcycles, one sitting and one on a side. Uh, they don't have them nowadays, but they came. They were dressed beautifully. We were filthy and disgusting and smelly. And with loudspeakers, they made an announcement, you're being taken to camps, men on one side, women on the other. My father realized that when you get into a camp, the first thing you have to do is get undressed to go to the showers. If I would get undressed, they would see I'm not one of the men or one of the boys, and they would kill me and kill him and anybody who tried to help me. He gave me a picture of my family, my mother, father, my two brothers, and me. Look at the pictures. The war is going to be over. Everybody knows the Allies are coming. I promise to meet you in Pietrakov. 
we will meet again in our home in Pietrica. He promised. Father's supposed to keep their promises. My father didn't. I never saw him again. I did find a train schedule with his name and his brother's name. And because they were L and the Laus, also L, where we were uh, Lichtenstein and they were Lau, it's on the same page. So I have proof with their numbers that they were taken to Buchenwald. But the women were going to go to Bergen-Belsen. I mean, I didn't know the names at that time. I've learned this since then. I really don't even remember. I, don't I didn't know how to read or write. I was three and a half when the war started. But I also found a card that he had when he entered Buchenwald. So I know what happened, but I don't know what happened to him afterwards, whether he, how he died or how he met his death. Died seems like such an easy word. But I've, I found this, but that was the last that I found. He met this teacher and he asked her whether she would keep an eye on me. And as I said, he promised to meet me. I don't know her name, but she said, come, my name is Fredjo again, I'm a girl. We will walk together, like mother and daughter. And we did. And we walked in the snow. Um, and um, while we were walking, if somebody sat down, they were shot. If somebody fell, they were shot. So as you went along, there were bodies and blood and bodies and blood. And there was snow. It seems to me it always snowed, but it's not true. I've been to Poland many times. And this time of the year, there are spring and there are flowers and there, there's fruit and uh, it's spring and summer. But I never remember it being warm. I just remember the snow and dirty, dirty snow. Um, we were high up and down in the ravine. There were two men lying in the valley with their pants down. I had no idea what was happening, but the women were all talking about it. And afterwards, I realized what had happened. I didn't know. As I said, I was too young to know anything. But if men were running away or pretending to be Christians, if they were caught and they were told to take their pants down, if they were circumcised, it was a, a real giveaway. Um, I think it was easier for women in different ways. Certainly e easier for me had to have women because women tended to make a family and take care of each other more than men did. Um, when we came to Bergen-Delsen, we had to, just as my father predicted, we had to get undressed and leave everything on, uh, on the side, um, on piles. I was holding on to my pictures. My father said it was important. It was a picture of my mother, father, and and brothers and me, one of the men thought maybe I had a diamond or money or something in my hand, pried up my hand. Must have been very disappointed because it was just a picture. Tore it up and threw it away. For him, it was garbage. For me, if you look at my house, I've got pictures all over. Do you see my photos yeah. there? But they're all after the age of 10. I don't have anything from before. When we went into the showers... I left my pictures and everything there. This woman stole a black coat from one of the piles that people left. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what happened to the woman. I don't know if I have a coat, but she kept that around me, the two of us, to keep warm. And every five or six women would get a blanket to cover themselves in the bunks, bunkers that you had, bunks. But by the time we got them, they were all broken because it was laid in the wall already. By 1945, the beginning of 45, Maidanig and Auschwitz were liberated. Pergen-Belsen wasn't liberated until April. Mm. You know how many months later 
that was, um, and how many people died during those months in the cold and the snow. Um, every five women covered themselves. And when we got in, we slept on the stone floor with lice and fleas and rats running around. And every day, hundreds of people died. And the women would take their uh, blanket, put a body into the blanket, and throw the body out someplace on the vast expanse of the, the Bergen-Belsen. Now when you go there, I've been back there, um, their mounds, it looks like a tell of mass graves. Um, every day, people died. And apparently, people were sick and people, it was just one after another. And I don't know how I found myself being outside of the barracks, whether I went on my own. Apparently, I had typhus and diphtheria. And I don't know that I knew, I didn't know it at the time, but we found my medical record from Sweden, and I'll show it to you, where I had typhus and diphtheria. And everything is spinning and going, but I found myself lying outside with half-dead people and dead people, and everybody was just dying. And there was no water the last three days of Bergen-Belsen. They claimed that the, uh, uh, the, the Allies were bombing and, and, they, and they broke the water pipes. When the British came in, they were able to fix the water pipes. Um, there was no food. Anyway, I was lying there, and something happened that day that never happened before. Uh, everybody was just dying, but people started walking faster than they've ever walked, and they started shouting and saying things, and they never were so... What had happened was soldiers came in, wearing different uniforms, speaking a different language, and with loudspeakers, megaphones, they made an announcement, we are the British Army, we have come to free you, you're free, you can go whatever you want, we brought you food, we brought you medicine, you can go, you can go. Where do I want to go? I can't move because I'm, I'm very sick. The mother I had disappeared, they always disappeared, I didn't have a new one yet, and I didn't know what to do. The British had a hard time, the first thing they had to do was bury people. They buried 10,000 bodies close by. They tried to feed people, and 14,000 people died after the war in Bergen-Belsen. 2,000 kids, they ate the wrong food. Did you, you, your stomach shrinks like that. Then they even got Germans from surrounding little towns there to help bury all these bodies. And then they burnt down all the barracks of Bergen-Belsen including all the records. So I didn't have any records even to prove that I was there. Now I do. I have all the things from Hayas and from the Joint and from Evo and from Sweden because they burnt down all the barracks and because I was one of the lucky ones, Sweden had opened its doors to 6,000 survivors to come to recuperate in uh, displaced persons camp. They called it alien camps. And I have proof from Sweden um, that I was on a transfer to Sweden. I, I'm telling you this proof, it's important to me because before I had it, I thought I knew that I had a mother and father. I thought I knew I had brothers. I thought I knew, but it just seemed so strange that how could you have 
now I know for sure. So I went to a school, can you read it, transfer? A transfer, and I went to a place called Bjarne. I met a new mother, but she disappeared. They all died. And I was taken to a hospital called Hasselholm. I've been back there also. And I found my temperature chart. 1945, they kept this. And I have flecked typhus and diphtheria. Nobody has typhus nowadays. It's been and diphtheria, children at three months get inoculations. I had it. Can you imagine keeping these records and sending it to me? And Barbara, who works in Hadassah, was able to translate it and go through. And while I was in the hospital, a beautiful young Swedish couple came, and they brought me a doll, and they brought me candy canes. It was Christmas time, and other good stuff. And they asked me if I'd like to go home and live with them. Well, I thought that was the best thing that ever happened to me. People around me said, something I didn't know what it meant. They said that I was Jewish. What does it mean to be Jewish? I really don't remember my mother lighting candles or having Passover. Or we had. I really don't remember. The, I try very hard to remember, but I'm finding it hard. To, do I remember? or Did somebody tell me? Or did I make it up? Um, they sent me to an... I didn't go. Uh, they said that the Jewish children we're going to be allowed to be taken to Palestine. The reason I said Palestine, in 1945, unfortunately, we had no Israel. Just think if Israel had been born in 1938 instead of 1948. Just think if the countries of the world had opened their doors. Nobody wanted us. Just think if we had any friends in the world. We had no friends. Nobody. The St. Louis went from place to place, couldn't get in other places. But now the British government was going to allow 6,000, no, that was a year. They were going to allow children to come to Palestine. Many people came to Palestine, were sent to Cyprus and Athlete, but at least they were going to go to Palestine. And thank God now Palestine is called Israel. <coughs> I didn't want to go with the Christian couple because they said that my mother and father and brothers were all in Palestine. I would meet them. I didn't know they were dead at the time. Excuse me. So I went to a different camp called Tinskrid. I met another mother. I'm always lucky to meet people. People always help me. Her name was Anna. <coughs> Anna had a son and a daughter. Her son was older. Her daughter was nine and a half. Her name was Fanny. She was born in Germany. February 15, 1936. Um, while we were in Sweden, um, no, I'm sorry. Yes, you, we are in Sweden now. And I met Anna. Anna's daughter, Fanny, died. Her death was my luck. Her brother had been in the United States, and he sent her tickets and affidavits and all the papers she needed. Somebody had to sponsor you. And he sponsored three people, Anna, Sigmund, and Fanny. Fanny died. Anna asked me if I want to be her daughter and go with her to America. Everybody said how lucky I was to go to America. And from America, I could always go to Palestine to meet my parents and, and my brothers. I got her name. So now my name is Fanny. I got her birthday. I didn't have one, and she was dead. She didn't need that one. And I became Fanny. 
And it was normal for me because I thought that every, you keep on getting new names and new mothers. Doesn't everybody get new names and new mothers? That's, that's the life that I knew. I have a picture of me, somebody found, after I got better from the hospital. And um, we came on a ship. We saw the Statue of Liberty and the big houses. I thought I'd live in one of those big houses like the Empire State because they said everybody lives in big houses. Listen, I came from... I had never been to a city. I, I didn't know anything. I was really, really, um, I, I can't even think of anybody else. Like when the Ethiopians came and we helped them, they, they, they were far behind many things. But I think I was completely out of it. Anyway, we came into Stat to uh, Ellis Island, and uh, Anna Sfim picked us up, and they took us to Lindhurst, Long Island, is a little a town in uh, Long Island, New York, and uh, we got an apartment, and all the children started teaching me, say man, say woman, say cup, say water. I was the only child there as a survivor, and, and I didn't speak any English, and they really tried to help me, and it was fun for them. A man gave me a carriage and a doll. Don't remember ever having one before. And uh, in the summertime, we went up to the Catskill Mountains where people used to go and there were little rooming houses like and children went to day camp and I went to day camp. My English was getting better every day and I, w I learned to go swimming and I learned to play blue, put blueberries and ride a bicycle and play with Jack. I became, started becoming an American kid. Nobody ever talked about the past. Nobody asked me anything. I didn't want to tell them anything. We just kept on living. Life started being wonderful. But one day, Anna disappeared, my new mother. And it wasn't so bad, because I had a bed. Nobody was being shot. I had food. Um, I was going to day camp. But a few days later, her family came back, looking very sad and glum. And they said, Fanny, that was my name, um, pack up your things. We have to go back. I didn't know what happened. They never explained anything to me. They took me to a cemetery in Farmingdale, New York, and there was a lot of grass and uh, uh, graves. There was an open grave, a hole. There was a casket near it. I had no idea what was happening. Nobody explained anything. They thought I had known about death. And I knew nothing. Anna had died. Maybe she was bitten by a rat or some points from, from the camps, but she lived long enough to come to the United States and to bring me and her son, and then she died. And everybody was crying except me. I didn't know you're supposed to cry when somebody dies. And Bergen Belsen, you just threw out the body, and we went back to see, did they leave anything there? Who are, nothing. Here, everybody was weeping. And maybe they thought I didn't love Anna because I didn't, uh, wasn't crying. I, d I just didn't know what was happening. We went home to sit shiva. Jewish people sit seven days a morning. And now they had a problem. I'm always somebody's problem. They brought over a woman who was going to take care of her children. But now that she's not there anymore, they really didn't want me. So one of the people, Max Goldberg, knew a family in Brooklyn, New York, Leah and Jack Globe. They were 46 years old, and they never had children. 
And he called and asked, maybe you'd like to meet a little girl who uh, came from the Holocaust. She's an orphan, and she could use a home. Uh, meet her, see how it works out. And I went there. It was Arab Shabbat, and there was chicken soup cooking. You could smell the chicken soup and the noodles, and there was a pie there. And it, it looked like a wonderful home. The only thing I didn't like is they had a little dog. And I was so scared of those dogs because of the German shepherd dogs. But he was little, and they promised me that he'd be okay. Besides that, I wasn't going to show them that, that I was scared because maybe they liked the dog better than they liked me. And if they, if they don't like me, would they send me back there? Would they send me out in the street? Would they send me to an orphanage? Can you imagine a little girl has to all of a sudden start thinking about this? Well, I didn't have to think that. They liked me. And they asked me the same question I had been asked for before. Would you like to be our daughter and stay with us? And of course, I, this time I got a mother and a father and a house and a dog. And they changed my name. My name, which had been um, um, Fredja. Well, Fredja is, 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 is a Polish name. And Freud, you're not a boy anymore. And Fanny, it's a make-believe Fanny. Those are not really names you have. Fredo means joy. And joy in Hebrew means Rina. You're going to be our arena, and um, from now on, we'll call you. So in 46, 1946, I got the name Rena. Now it's a very popular name. In 46, it wasn't. And they really gave me a very good education and music lessons. And we went traveling, and I had friends. And when I started dating, I, I, uh, I was lucky. I was popular. I went to elementary school. I was terrible in elementary school because my English was so bad. Uh, two schools, the Yeshiva Flatbush that my children went to and that my husband was chairman of the Board of, Re of Education refused to take me. They, they rejected me correctly. And the Crown Heights Yeshiva also, they said, I, I didn't know English, I didn't know math, I didn't know, how could I do Hebrew and you know two things? And they said, I just wouldn't fit in. So um, my, sense, my family sent me to a um, conservative school small private school and they gave me tutors and they really did everything my my english improved now i speak like an american because it's the only language i really spoke except that i speak yiddish if i have to. i don't speak polish at least i don't think i speak polish um and um this is, i have a my my father was the only father i know uh, matter of fact we just said jessica a few days ago and People ask me, who do you say Yiska for? So I used to say for two mothers, the one who gave birth to me and the one who raised me. I don't know the others, but there, there's a place for people you don't know, so I include them. And for my two fathers and my two brothers. Um, uh, um, in 1981, there was, I, I got married. We, we had a wonderful, wonderful Life. My husband wrote me notes every single day. He was a lawyer and a rabbi, and I have notes around my house. And he said it when he gets up in the morning. We just found a video that Steven Spielberg did 25 years ago. He said when he gets up in the morning, he says, Modani, thanking God for giving me. And then he says, and thank you for uh, Rena, for saving Rena, and I thank Rena for marrying me. And every day he wrote me a note um, encouraging me and and um, he really was a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, in 1981, there was a gathering of Holocaust survivors here in Israel. 
And my family said, you know, you, you put your head in your sand. You, you make believe nothing happened. Maybe somebody survived. So we came. We went to Binyaneheoma. We put up all kinds of sands. We went to the hotels. There weren't that many around there. But we went to them to put up to, to find out. Nobody ever heard of my family. And I didn't know anybody. So we wrote to a place called Arlson, which is an international tracing bureau. And they gave me a lot of information. They gave me my name, my parents' name, the house that I lived in, the address, that I was in the different ca ghetto camps, uh, I was liberated from Bergen-Belsen, all the things that I told you now, I have proof. Real, real proof, which is very important to me. And so um, Arlson is a very good place to, um, to look to. In 84, we made Aliyah. And um, this past summer, um, I don't know how this happened, but Yad Vashem chose me to meet President Biden. Yep. Did you see those pictures of me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a few days ago, last week, there was a new book that came out, Book of Names, and President Herzog was there. So I'm lucky enough to meet all these different people as an American Israeli, which is very funny, yeah. you know, because I, when I met Biden, I brought my citizenship papers. I never showed it to him. And we had a 15-minute conversation about everything else, like, like friends. It was really uh, incredible. But I wanted to show him that, um, and to thank him for letting the United States let me in and, um, and, and, and I became a citizen. And I think it's very important when I'm asked to speak in this time of the year, I'm asked often, uh, because there are many people who just don't believe it happened. I think there was a survey by CNN that says 62% of the millennial, millennials and the um, Gen, Gen Z, Gen Z yeah. they, they don't know. They can't mention the camp. I, I was invited to South Africa and I was in a wheelchair and the people pushing me said, oh, did you come to go to a safari? And I said, no, I came to speak about the Holocaust. And they said, who was he? And then I said, have you heard of Hitler? And People don't know. So there aren't that many survivors who are willing and who are able to uh, speak about the Holocaust. And survivors are dying out. I'm one of the youngest. Um, it happened 80 years ago, and anybody who was in their 20s would be 100 and, and above. So I think I have to do as much as I, as I can. And I think I'd like to pass the word around that we came to Israel. We love living in Israel. I am delighted to be a religious Jew. I entertain Friday nights very often. And there are groups that uh, there's a caterer who brings them and I speak to them about our Jewish rituals and Jewish Shabbat, and people who know nothing who are Jewish, and people who are Christian, and even some Muslims come. And it's good to share these different things. I had a bat mitzvah about two weeks ago, just before Passover, um, where the girl had a bat mitzvah. Her mother was Jewish, her father was not. The grandparents, they were there. And she said she just wanted to have a bat mitzvah and know what it's about. So if I can do anything like that and sort of share with other people the way people always help me, I feel fortunate enough that I live in Israel and able to do that. Wow. Okay. So first of all, thank you, Rina. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story with us. Um, I'm sure Alex and I both and also our listeners have many, many questions we would ask you, um, but also very... Um, do, you, do you see the people up here? Yeah. Yes. I see President Biden. 
And is that is Rabbi Lau? Yeah. And Benny Gans yeah. and Yair Lapid and uh, Biden. Yeah. And uh, Blinken. The Blinken is the president. president. Herzog. Herzog. Yeah, everybody was there. Devorah Lipstadt came. I've been with her. And this is President family. Biden. Um, huh? But one, one President thing. Biden gave me a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you if you could share with our listeners that you told us a bit about before, just to, to really. Um, as in, on your story, there's lots of questions. Uh, and, um, and lots of things that, that conflict with each other. Huh? Yeah. What's the word? Not saying conflict. Uh, contradict. 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 But in terms of, I guess, what you're doing today, you mentioned a bit about it before, but just to give our listeners a sense you shared with us, you don't have to give specific names or places, a little sense of it's Yom HaShoah this week and our listeners, you know, this is our episode that we're doing for Yom HaShoah, but what does this week look like for you? Uh, what are you up to? Where are you going? Who's, I mean, how busy is it? I am very, very busy. Tonight I'm going to a little Malaya Dumim, which is outside of, uh, of Jerusalem, and tomorrow I'm going to two high-techs, one of them called Cyber Art. The other one is called Intel in Ramat Gan. They're picking me up, and I'm speaking to these groups. And they could be large. I have no idea how many. They don't know how many. But today, they just I just got a call saying, "Listen, do you mind if we also do a Zoom and record?" So it could go. Intel, I hear, is, is thousands of people around it. And then on Yom HaShoah, I go to a midrash which are girls who have come from um, mostly from the United States and England, and we go out to listen to the siren. The siren blows and the whole city, all the cars and everybody walking, stops and listens for a minute to the siren. And you think about it, and you know, I've, I've done this now many times, and I just wonder, the trees are going and the birds are going, but the peop six million people lost their lives for what? And when I think of people, Last week we had a two, um, two young women and their mother killed. And the man who killed them, what did he gain by this? Why do we have to have, why do we have, to have wars? We have enough food, we have enough water. Israel made, made water out of oceans now, so we don't have to fight about that. And if we could just make peace, how do we make peace? And when you think about Yom HaShoah, war is bad for everyone. When you think about God created man in his image, not only did Jews die, but how many Russians and how many, how many Germans? Everybody is in a war. Why can't we make peace? You, you said as you started speaking that your story is, is different to most uh, other um, stories of, of survivors. And I think one of the things that your story highlights is the kindness of the people that you call your mothers, um, you know, at, at every stage. I don't know what else to call them. Right, no, and I, th I think it's just, it. I think it's a beautiful thing to, to call them your mothers, and that there were people who were willing to, I mean, forget, I mean, putting the risk aside, just at, at a time where they weren't experiencing kindness to to be a uh, a source of kindness and, and you know, to, to look after a little girl who, I think what I, I very often think of. I think sort of like God said all these angels to me, and I don't. I don't remember my mother at all. I try so hard to find her face, or my father and brothers. My father, I have some picture um, of a whatever, but um, my mother and my brother, nothing, nothing whatsoever. Did these people take me because they were kind, 
did they take because they had no choice? Or did they take me because they lost a daughter? The last one who took me from Sweden, I became her daughter because she, she gave me her daughter's identity, everything. I found my birthday. Now I have two. I have one in December, born in Poland, and, I, and my passport says I was, in February I was born in Germany because I became that child and you can't change it. I don't know why these people took me, but I think that um, uh, Primo Levi and Viktor Frankl wrote about kindness after the war, and they found that that brought back humanity, when somebody was willing to share a piece of bread with you or light a fire to warm everybody, not just yourself. And we have to think of that, that um, they, 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 I went to a lecture once in, um, one of the speakers, Olivia Overado, uh, she said there was a difference between men and women, and women had a better chance to survive. I wasn't even going to go to the lecture because it sounded, why do you separate as a survivor as a survivor, or a victim as a victim? But after she spoke, I realized she said women had a better chance for different reasons. First of all, the circumcision was a very big difference, where women could uh, pretend to be Christian, and hide. The second one was that men went to Cheder. They went to a school, and they spoke Yiddish, and they had an accent, whereas the girls didn't. They either went to a public school or didn't go to school. And the third, which is the most important, is that women would sort of make a family and help each other. So if somebody couldn't walk, they would lean on somebody, where men were more macho and I can do it by myself. Even nowadays, you, you go driving in a car and you're lost, and the woman says, let me ask them, and the man says, wait, we'll find it, we'll find it. So women tended, so that's what happened to me. I always found a woman, and she, I could call her an angel, I could call her a, a messenger, and I could call her a mother, because um, the last one did become a mother, and the one in Sweden also, but it didn't last for very long. And the first one who gave birth to me. And when you think of your question, I very often think which is more important. The woman who gave birth to me? Am I like her? Or the woman who raised me? Am I like her? I don't know. Maybe our listeners would write in to see what they do. <laughs> yeah. um, obviously, it was a great privilege for us to sit with you. Um, one of the things that you know, we're thinking about um, Alex and myself, let's say, as as uh, parents of children now who are young um, and as they're growing up, we might not necessarily have the same privilege to hear from Holocaust survivors. What do you think, and you in your adult life have been involved both in, in education or specifically in, hol in uh, Holocaust education, what do you think education of the Shoah looks like? Or what would you like it to look like in the coming 10, 20 years in the future? where well, we don't necessarily have the same um, privilege to be able to sit with survivors and hear their stories firsthand. Well, Yad Vashem is now doing a lot of filming. If, if you go into um, YouTube, I think I'm there like seven or eight times. The last one, I'm speaking all German. I don't speak a word of German. But as <laughs> I'm speaking, you know, they translate it, and they have very, very good pictures of Pietrikov and of Bergen-Belsen. So Yad Vashem realizes that they won't be able to have live witnesses, but as long as they are, I had a group of Germans, a lot of Germans are coming now to, to find out. They also want to know, how could my grandfather, who was such a gentle, nice man, have killed people? And he won't talk about it, and you know, we, we discuss these different things. So how do I look for it? I think, first of all, we have to tell them the history. 
we have to tell them a place like Poland. It's called Poland because people thought, oh, here we can live and for a while. And, and now all these things that are going on, we found out that um, we had no friends. And Israel has to be very, very strong. But coming back to the education, I think we have to learn the history. And we have to learn not to repeat it. We have to learn that Israel must be strong. We have to keep our religion to go through. I think we have to show what happened in the ghettos, what happened in the camps, even people who were not, people, could people believe in God or not? It's a question that, uh, that could be, depending on, on where you come from and how to say it, what would you do in a certain situation, I would ask the children. Um, why did these people become my mothers? Would you share bread with somebody? Uh, and I think now, when we hear so much bullying going on, and we hear so much anti-Semitism going on, it's frightening, because it could happen again. And we think of, of what's happening in different worlds, of, uh, um, specifically in, in Afghanistan and, and Iran. They've got their own Shoah. They've got their own Holocaust. How do we prevent it? So we have to teach them facts, we have to teach them the background, and we have to teach them how strong we have to be and help each other. I think you, I mean, you, you said before, you, you, you asked the question, you know, are you more like the mother who gave birth to you or the mother who adopted you or any other mothers who, who saved your life? But I think the, the wonderful thing is that you're like Rena. Um, and I think just coming into your home and seeing your positivity and just how you have uh, chosen to live your life um the, the, the life that you know and under any other circumstance may not have happened Ari and I are incredibly grateful and humbled to have been welcomed into your home and to hear your story and be able to record it and and play it to our, our many thousands of listeners um and so you know thank you so so much uh, giving yeah, you, I, I want to tell you a few weeks ago I was asked by a very good speaker in Yad Vashem she talks about the Holocaust. I'm, I used to be on Zoom during Corona with, with China and Macau and Taiwan and Philippines and all that. And she gave the lectures. And then David Deutsch did a virtual tour. And then I spoke. And this, this very good speaker asked me to come and speak in her son's school where the children are, um, um, uh, what is it called? Not disabled. Um, they, they, they haven't what do you, nowadays you call it a different name? Learning difficulty. Learning disabled. Okay, learning disabled. School is called Niruim, I think. And um, near the Mifletzit, you know what mm -hmm. they think? In Kiri Yovel. And I said, what am I going to, how am I going to speak to, these are like um, 16, 18, they're, they're, they're adults, but they're, their mm -hmm. minds are very young. And she says, you'll know what to say. And she wouldn't tell me what to say. I really didn't know, but I came in and I saw them. I said, did anybody have six mothers? And they started to laugh. I said, it does sound laughable, but you know, I really had six mothers. And could you have been born in Tevet or in Shvat at the same time? They laughed. They understood what I was saying, but it was funny. And I said, you know, I have that. I have two birthdays. And... Um, I was asking them questions like that, and then I just gave the answers to what they did. And they said I should speak about 20 minutes. I spoke about over an hour. 
I didn't speak. They kept on asking questions, and we go, so if these kids can understand, or these people, young children can understand, and I think it's important. And as I said, I don't know exactly what I was going to say today or how, and sometimes I lose words and I need someone to help me, and it scares me, because as I'm getting older, I'm afraid this is my mind and body are not going to cooperate as much as I'd, I'd, I'd like them to. But I think that as long as you can, I'm very happy. And having you in my home is much easier than having to go and meet you in your offices. <laughs> we're, happy to, we're happy to come. And as I said, it's been yeah. a, a great privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really, really, really appreciate it. And really a, a big honor and a pleasure to meet Thank you today. You. Okay. That's what we've got time for for this week of the current podcast. Al Regal Achat. If you would like to be in touch with us or uh, indeed be in touch with Rina herself, um, you can send us an email to podcast at corinpub.com or follow us on social media uh, at Corin Publishers uh, on any platform. Um, you can also get 10% off uh, your next order from corinpub.com using promo code podcast at checkout. Um, we'll be back again next week. Um, with uh, a special episode for Yom Hartzmaut. Uh, and so until next time, this has been the Corin Podcast. 